Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with John Potash, a wonderful author. Uh, his research on, on so many different subjects are just impeccable, incredible. Uh, Twelve years of research went into his latest, and it's called The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era through the 1990s. And uh, it kind of it kind of says it all right there. John Potash, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Frank. Hey, first of all, am I pronouncing you right? Is it Potash? Potash? Uh, that's fine. That's but, fine. Yeah, you don't you don't care. I'm sure you heard both. Nah. Yeah. Well, listen. That being said, let's get a little bit of your history, and if you don't mind, sure. start from the beginning. Uh, where were you born? Where were you raised? Born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and. And uh, worked as a counselor in the nineteen in nineteen ninety when I first uh, started researching the Black Panthers. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's uh, in in my mind that's heavy um, uh, research to do, and I think in a lot of people's minds, at least people that go back a, a while uh, might even say it's uh, it's dangerous research. And uh, uh, you know, let mm-hmm. us know if that's that's true um, or or not. But I imagine. Um, a lot of people don't like you poking into their their personal business and and folks. Yeah, it is, it is true, <laughs> it is true. Well, g- give us a little give us a little taste of what that uh, the beginning of that um, started looking like. Yes. Or, uh, it, what was your first? Yes. Thing? Yeah. Yeah. So I started uh, researching. I was counseling someone who said my father was a Black Panther killed by the police, and so I was researching him for a, char- a, pl- a character in a political novel. And so I started finding that the Shakurs were the leading Black Panthers of New York, and so that's how I ended up finding out about you know Tupac Shakur and his Black Panther parents and all of that. But um, of course, when I first put out this book in a Kinko's bound form before I got it out in regular form, um, it appears I was living in New York City and I moved to Baltimore when I got it out in regular form and in, and. So the NYPD appeared to take a strong interest in me because we found out that they had the backup email for for my uh, phone, Verizon phone system, you know. So that was problematic. That was scary to find out. Um, but nonetheless, I uh, found out a lot about the Shakur, about the Panthers and all the. I, I actually studied community organizing when I was in graduate school at Columbia University. And they were considered the leading community organizers of the Black Panthers. The uh, Young Lords, the Latino version of the Black Panthers, modeled themselves after them, as, as did the American Indian Movement. And so many great community organizers modeled themselves after the programs of the Black Panthers. And so uh, the Tupac Shakur grew up in that environment, and Fanny Shakur, his mother, who was a one-time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers, said um, she raised her son to be what she called a revolutionary. Now, that's not, you know, to take over the country, but just to change things for the better is what the Black Panthers were thinking about that. And so Tupac was that all his life, but he was just misunderstood because um, at one one point when he first broke out with a single record, he uh, decided with his um, imprisoned political stepfather to pretend to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. 
And that was part of his Black Panther extended family's work in call, getting the Bloods and the Crips uh, gangs to call peace truces and start working on activism and fighting racism instead of each other. And so that's why uh, Tupac sadly played a part in his own misunderstanding because he was really an intellectual prodigy reading hundreds of PhD levels level books before he was out of his teen years and he had you know rewritten Shakespeare in modern language and started and produced it produced the play and um, so he was a pretty amazing figure that people just didn't really uh, truly know and he was already actually a Black Panther leader in terms of being a head of a group called the New African Panthers when he was uh, still in his, uh, about 18 years old and um, that they were active in eight to ten cities. So when when I read about the Black Panthers and the FBI's counterintelligence program, which had targeted leftist leaders in general, was particularly brutal against the Black Panthers. I found that um, there was a man named uh, Wes Swearingen who was part of COINTELPRO in, in uh, the FBI, and he said he came out with a memoir in mid 1990s saying the FBI continued their program just using different names, even though they officially closed it down in 1971. So he said they can at least continued the FBI's counterintelligence program under different names at least until about 1995 when he came out with his memoir. And so I show the evidence that they continued that program against Tupac Shakur, sadly enough. Let me remind folks that just maybe tuning in a little late or, or calling in uh, or, or turning on their radios a little late, uh, you're listening to John Potash, and he's the author, and I'll give you the whole title, uh, so, and please get this book, a very important book, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era Through the 1990s, and our subject uh, today is, is Tupac and and, and that war uh, that he, uh, he, he encountered, uh, actually the, the different wars that he encountered. Uh, John, let me, let me ask you something. The, the background that Tupac mm -hmm. uh, grew up in, uh, the, the fact that he had that, uh, that, that organizational background, you know, the, uh, the mm -hmm. folks um, into activism and, uh, and strongly, uh, you know, about rebellion. And again, uh, you, you know, mm -hmm. You said it, you know, not about taking over the government, but uh, changing things. In, in so many ways, it was the perfect storm for what he was going to eventually do for a living or do for his, uh, to make his mark. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look into Tupac and, and you're a young African-American, uh, you know, record buyer, let's say, uh, you're going to see him as being credible right away. Uh, right or wrong on that front? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was an incredible writer. And it's just too bad that he hid it behind this street language, but he had incredible lyrics, though it was all in street slang, so people didn't realize how brilliant his lyrics were. Yeah. I, well, I mean, listen, having said that, um, the, the people that, uh, that were, you know, that made him a star, I mean, the folks that made him a star probably wanted that, right? They wanted the street language. They didn't want to be... Um, you know, necessarily uh, preached to or whatever. It was a, True. a you know, very streety, um, uh, you know, record-buying public at that point. Yeah. And I, yeah. at what point did he did he break through? Well, at what point did he have a record deal of any kind? Well, he uh, first toured with Digital Underground, who were Grammy-nominated in 1990. Um, in 1991, he broke through and had a solo release called Tupacalypse Now, 
with Interscope Records, and that was an upstart group. No one else would sign him because his, his lyrics were very political in the first his first CD, even though he was only 19 years old or so. And so that's what, he started breaking through there because that ended up becoming gold. And then his second album, strictly for my N I G G A Z, um, that was uh, got bigger. But he also had also you know started in his first first film, Juice. Um, and then he kept started another film with John Singleton, um, with uh, Janet Jackson and Poetic Justice. And so both the film rise and the CD releases were making him a big star pretty, you know, very quickly, actually. And it was a pretty meteoric rise because he died at 25. And it's amazing what he put out you know, by the age of 25. Did, did a guy like Jimmy Iovine get him right away or was it someone else at Interscope? Was uh, was Jimmy Iovine an early supporter of Tupac's? I, I believe he was, but it was really Ted Field, whose who's, uh, daughter I read. Um, Ted Field had, had um, inherited the Field, uh, Marshall Field, as his dad owned these department stores in Chicago. So he was he had inherited that fortune and started his own record label that way. And so he actually, as my understanding, is really discovered Tupac, but Jimmy Iovine I guess, was involved in his label. Um, and that's, yeah, that's what first broke him out. And the strange thing was when it was, there was, you know, huge entreaties to switch to Death Row Records and Tupac and his business manager, Watani Tayahimba, told me they didn't, they didn't know why. Um, they didn't have any understanding why Watani did interview Watani Tayahimba, his business manager, who was a former Black Panther and all his lawyers, his trial lawyers, like Michael Warren in New York and um, Chokwe Lumumba, who was his national lawyer. And so they said they just didn't understand it, but eventually he had to. He was in jail, and he was kind of forced to switch to death row records. And that uh, had dozens of police officers at all levels, according to high-level police detective Russell Poole. And Russell Poole said when he asked his superiors, what are they all doing there, they told him, you can call them, uh, covert agents, believe it or not, troubleshooters or covert agents. And um, so it turned out that Death Row Records was drug trafficking, gun running, trying to end the Bloods versus Crips peace truce and do the opposite of what Tupac was doing. And they were, sadly enough, setting Tupac up for his eventual murder, you know, by, I believe, orchestrated by U.S. intelligence. It's scary and sadly enough. Where was Suge Knight in all of this, if anywhere? Just low man on the totem pole. He he had he had got increasing uh, criminal uh, arrests until there was a point where all of a sudden he stopped getting arrested for even worse crimes, and it was similar to what you might have seen in the film uh, Jesus and the Black Messiah, where you had that guy who who got arrested for something serious, but he was let off to become kind of become an undercover agent, and that's. You know, the same tactics back in the COINTELPRO era of the 1960s, everyone knows or might know now from that film, is you know, replicated here in the 1990s, and that happened with Suge Knight. So as soon as he accomplished Tupac's murder, then he, he, wasn't, he didn't have legal immunity anymore, and he, you know, Suge Knight went to jail for small, for more minor crime, actually. But um, and so that's that was the situation. And uh, the but Russell Poole said before he died, sadly enough, that his fellow police officers, he believes, killed Tupac Shakur and they killed Biggie to, to hide Tupac's murder um, and make it look like it is East Coast versus West Coast war when, um, you know, it was really just the trying to get rid of a black leader who was trying to change the world for the better. 
John Potash is the voice you're hearing, and the FBI war on Tupac Shakur is the, is the book that we're talking about here. It's his latest. Uh, it is a must-get, a must-read, and Frank McKay here. So Thank you. Importantly, John Potash is our very special guest. Uh, let's let's go back to uh, Tupac being 19 and and getting his first record deal, which is uh, which is uh, unbelievable if you think about it, and you, you think about what most 19-year-olds are doing to uh, to land a deal with uh, with Interscope, even though it was you know it was up and coming and it wasn't there yet, but still. Uh, it, it did. It did represent that he had arrived, uh, or at least to a certain level, he had arrived. Uh, what happened upon the release of that album? Yeah, so he um, he landed in '19. It came out maybe a year or so later. He was about 20 or so um, in 1991. And uh, you said what happened a year a year after that? Well, what happened uh, upon that record coming? So out? so when it came when that record came out. Um, three about several days after its MTV worldwide release of his first video called Trapped, which is a political song about people being trapped in the ghetto, he, he says they were trapped in prison, um, like his political prisoner father. Um, he was arrested, uh, supposedly for jaywalking. He was choked unconscious and his head was beat against the curb. And I showed two instances of, of people dying you know, from police, you know, in police custody that way. And then after that, um, maybe a year or two later, uh, people shot at him for no reason right in front of police officers, and they failed to stop the assailants, and they instead arrested Tupac. And that was at this Marin Fest situation. And then, you know, again, so after he kept getting bigger and bigger, and then the attacks on him getting, kept getting more and more sophisticated. But, um, you know, then after that, Atlanta police... Um, supposedly uh, off-duty, you know, went over to his car window, according to eyewitnesses, smashed the, the window of his car, shot at him, and he just ran back to a, a guard's gun behind him and shot back in self-defense. The, the case didn't even go through trial, despite a black, young black man shooting a white police officer in Atlanta, you know, in the Deep South. Um, and I should argue that the evidence, best evidence shows is because it was another attempt on his life. Um, and uh, so they didn't want to reveal the facts of it all. And, of course, then in New York, there was, he was shot again in the New York recording studio lobby that was one of the top New York recording studio lobbies. They pretended like it was a random mugging at 11 p.m. in the most well-lit area of, of the world, which is Times Square, New York City, where this recording studio lobby was. The security guard said he he offered the uh, video of the of the assailants to the police, and they turned it down and closed the case. And so those are some of the things that happened to him. They're highly suspicious, but um, you know, Tupac kept trying to do uh, work on the side. He, his actually his his gang peace truce movement was spreading throughout California and throughout the country to the point that was inspiring the Latin Kings, the largest gang in New York City, um, to call you know to stop dealing drugs and start turning one to activism so this was a uh, a really um well-respected movement and tupac was so you know so um loved by the young by the young people in the streets that they respected him calling these peace truces and they, they abided by it for a while john potash is our very special guest i'll give you the whole title again uh, the fbi war on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of 
black leaders from the civil rights era through the 1990s. Frank McKay here with John Potash. John, uh, who was the first person that you could, you know, either recollect or, uh, better yet, uh, in your research, uncovered uh, that started talking about Tupac being a uh, a target from, uh, you know, let's yeah, you know, let's say in, in the title of the book from the FBI. When was the first time you heard that theory? So I I had uh, just guessed at that theory and cold called his trial lawyer, Tupac's New York City trial lawyer, Michael Warren. And um, and I said, you know, I'm trying to write an article for one of these act- national activist magazines, and um, and nobody. And he said, you know, this is great because no one else is writing about this, and this needs to be told. And so he gave me a several hour interview. And um, so that New York trial lawyer, he had represented, he was a spokesman for the Mumia Abul Jamal campaign in Europe, and would speak all around Europe for Mumia Abul Jamal, but he. Also, of course, did his legal work in New York City, where I was living. Well, actually, at that time, I was in Washington, D.C., and then moved to New York City, where I got to look at all these court documents from Tupac and find out a lot more and get other cases and stuff. And so um, he gave me a full rundown on Tupac's activism, and um, and then he, he got me in touch with Tupac's business manager, as I say, former business manager, Watani Taihimba, former Black Panther who um, had known Tupac all his life and gave me and confirmed that, yes, he was only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. And um, so, yeah, that's where I first got the rundown from him and then other trial lawyers for Tupac and, of course, you know, the uh, people closest to him, like like Watani Tayhimba and Chokwe Lumumba, the former mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who was head of the New African People's Organization at one point, which was a national group that uh, Tupac was associated with, you know, former Black Panthers and other activists. Uh, how about Tupac's childhood, uh, let's say prior to, you know, 15 years old? What was what was it like? We know what his, his parents were activists, and we know that his parents yeah. had Black Panther roots. Um, what was he like as a child? So, so his mom used to uh, punish him by making him read the New York Times from cover to cover. And so that's how he developed his voracious reading and uh, appetite. And so, um, but then uh, some, I show the evidence that someone was inserted into her life to, to hurt her, to get her addicted to crack cocaine. And so it made his life a lot harder. But she, she got away from New York where that happened and brought him to Baltimore and got him into the Baltimore School for the Arts. So he studied dance and um you know, acting and studied, you know, Shakespeare at the Baltimore School for the Arts. And so he was, he was a, you know, a serious nerd, actually, but he was also into rapping. Um, but he was into, you know, he was considered the top student at the Baltimore you know, School for the Arts. He was elected to represent them at the, you know, like school committees that, that all met um, all over Baltimore City because he was, he was just a brilliant, natural leader. And um, his classmates recognized that. And um, people, teachers there told me he was the best, you know, actor they ever had. Um, that's where he befriended Jada Pinkett Smith, who uh, dedicated a, an auditorium to him. Um, you know, bought a multi-million dollar auditorium for the Baltimore School for the Arts in Tupac's name. And um, that's that's who he was back then. And so there was no hint of this, you know, the gangster side because that, you know, it's something he, he obviously, you know, put on later just for that political plan. 
but um and so he was he read up a storm he was he had a incredible memory he could recite um parts of like winnie mandela's book um and to you know a business his first manager and he impressed her and um a woman named layla steinberg who first introduced him to um Hon gregory who was a manager for digital underground when uh, his family then had to move him out of Baltimore because of some uh, crack cocaine killings nearby, and moved them to to Oak, moved him to Oakland, um, and um, so you know that's he actually first got his big break out when he was out there. John, we may have just lost you. Uh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. But uh, while uh, while we have an opportunity. Let me once again say John Potash is our very special guest. He's the author um, of The FBI War on Tupac Shakur. And when we come back right after this, uh, we'll hear more. And our subject again is Tupac Shakur. I'd like to welcome everyone back to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of a great book. It's a, it's a must-get, and you can get it now. Order two, order one for yourself, and order one for someone who you think will, will get into a, an intriguing story that I, I think will open up uh, you know, a lot of minds on, on, on honestly, the, uh, the talent of uh, Tupac Shakur, but also uh, the, some of the battles that he was, uh, he was dealing with that, um, uh, that should at least be explored. Now, regardless of what side of the the aisle you're on, as far as this all goes, uh, if you want to be uh, if you want to be educated and, and have a um, it, you know have a real educated opinion on it, uh, whether you're for or against, or whether you're whatever, um, uh, get this book and read the book. The name of it is the FBI War on the FBI's War on Tupac Shakur: State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era through the 1990s. Frank McKay here. Welcome back, John Potash. Thanks so much for having me on and commending my book. Well, listen, thrilled uh, thrilled to have you. And uh, we're talking a, a lot about uh, uh, Tupac here, and that's, you know, he's right in the title. Uh, how how does the book address other other leaders? I'm sure, um, you know, Malcolm X is, uh, is in there, and, of course, Martin, uh, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. Uh, but how much of a focus is is on everyone else as opposed to Tupac? Well, so there's a chapter, of course, on Martin Luther King. There's a cha- chapter on Malcolm X. There's a chapter on on uh, various uh, very important Black Panthers. And it basically shows how the Shakur family offers a window into the targeting of these incredible Black leaders of the last 60 years because Saludin Abba Shakur was a member of Marcus Garvey's group and then was a uh, conf- close confidant of Malcolm X's. And it was uh, Sayyidina Abba Shakur's sons, uh, Lumumba Shakur, Zaid Shakur, and Matulu Shakur, who were instrumental in Tupac's life. Lumumba Shakur founded the uh, Harlem Black Panthers. Zaid Shakur helped found the Bronx Black Panthers, and Matulu Shakur helped found um, just helped with the. He was a founding member of the uh, Republic of New Africa and started the, an acupuncture clinic for drug treatment in uh, Lincoln Detox in the Bronx. And these were all um, very important mentors to Tupac growing up. And um, so that's basically when you analyze the attacks on the Shakurs, you end up finding some of the same tactics and personnel, believe it or not, that attacked very important Black Panther leaders, but also 
in the way that uh, Malcolm X was was attacked by the FBI's counterintelligence program, as well as Martha King's sad assassination by the um, U.S. intelligence. I believe I believe the evidence is there, and I show it in in a chapter of the book, and you know the parallels with uh, Malcolm X's assassination too. In that regard, and um, and so the, when I look also at the chapters when Tupac's uh, Black Panther leader, you know, mentors the leaders of the Black Panthers, you find um, some sad targeting by U.S. intelligence um, for what was great community organizing they would do for the Black community. You know, in terms of stopping police brutality, starting free breakfast programs for children, etc. Uh, John did. And you got to pardon my ignorance on this, but uh, did Tupac's parents survive him? Well, um, his mother did survive him. Um, his uh, stepfather's in prison. Stepfather is still in prison, even though he was supposed to be released. His mother had uh, lived until about um, three or four years ago. Um, she died actually in, in later, in about 2016, 2018. Um, sadly, she, uh, somebody entered her life who, who swindled her again, yet again. And, um, but nonetheless, uh, she did survive him and she started the, uh, Tupac Amaru Shakur foundation to help, you know, kids with the arts teach, you know, young, poor black kids, you know, the arts. And that was very successful for, for many years. And, um, so she did very good things with Tupac's, um, estate. And um, right now, her daughter Setua Shakur, uh, Tupac's half sister, should um, should have the estate, but he, he she couldn't get full custody of the estate, sadly enough. Um, so that's still in, in the that's still in legal battles right now. What, what was the wealth of the um, what was the wealth of the estate? Uh, the estate was worth you know um, the huge amounts of money. Um, at least it started out at least about 75 you know million is my understanding because he had hundreds he was such a prolific writer he had hundreds and hundreds of unreleased songs and so she first uh Faye Shakur uh, Tupac's mother first had to battle um Death Row Records in court to get all those unreleased songs and she won but uh, you know the judge you know granted her all his songs uh with which were worth hundreds of millions of dollars but um, only she only got half of them actually, and um, and so somehow Death Row Records got away with not giving her, her all the songs. And nonetheless, she she released uh, a number of albums with the songs she got thereafter, and a number of them you know reached number one on the record charts. So um, so they did make her a lot of money to uh, do good things, um, do good activist work in terms of just helping kids with the arts and you know, teaching them having art camps for for you know, impoverished kids and stuff like that. You mentioned you're you're in Baltimore um, now. Did you grow up in Baltimore? I did grow up in Baltimore, and uh, eventually, you know, as an adult, moved to Washington D.C. and then lived in New York City for a long time, where I could had access to the most uh, court documents and to some of the you know, Tupac's mentors there. How about the the Baltimore uh, connection? Uh, you mentioned uh, the ties to uh, to Baltimore that the. Um, uh, that the family had. Uh, do you do you have any uh, did you have any run-ins uh, with them? And you know, I mean, when I say run-ins, I mean in a positive way. Did you have any interaction yeah. before the research of the book? I well, no, not before the research of the book, but I did t- uh, talk to some of those teachers at the Baltimore School for the Arts, 
And so he only had like a, a distant cousin really in Baltimore at one time um, because they all, they were just temporarily, him and his mom were just temporarily in Baltimore and his sister Setua. So, um, you know, I didn't see any other family here. I just, you know, I did, I did talk to people though that knew him when he was here. Yeah. You know, I, I find it amazing that, uh, that he has so much material and it was really before the time period. He died before the time period where home recording was so accessible uh you know like you know now everyone would have their own pro tools set up and or cubase or or some kind of um garage band even uh was that the case with him or was that all is this all studio work is this actual all formal studio work well, he his last his hundreds of unreleased songs were um, he did get he was in the studio all the time and people were amazed how he could produce several songs in in an hour or less um, you know and so he he was incredibly prolific writer because he was brilliant he died at the age of twenty five yet he had hundreds of unreleased songs uh, you know in addition to the dozens and dozens of you know hits star hit you know, hit records he had he had about half dozen records he finished a half dozen records before he died and then another you know a half dozen to a dozen records were put out after he died um by his family of his unreleased songs but he um he also starred in six movies before he died he he wrote a whole book of poetry before he died um he'd written a screenplay so he was just an incredibly prolific writer because he was a he was just a brilliant man and to die uh, early in his 25th year of life is, is amazing for what he had put out before he passed. John, we're going to need a, a part two with you and a part three maybe on, on this book. I, <laughs> I want to congratulate you on all your, all your work, not just the book, but everything that, that uh, came before that. Um, but again, Thanks so much, Frank. Everyone, that uh, Joan Potash's book and latest book is The FBI's War on Tupac Shakur. State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era through the 1990s. John, do you have a website or a social media site you could leave us with where we could follow along with what you're doing? And, and the, I guess the best place to get sure, Sure. So just johnpotash.com or potash, J-O-H-N-P-O-T-A-S-H.com is my website. And um, people can get this book at a number of Barnes and Nobles has it on their shelves. And if they don't have it on their shelves, they say they can get it within two or three days <coughs> on their shelves for you to see before you buy it. But you can also, of course, get it on Amazon or you can get it on a number of other places, a number of other stores sell it too. John, thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. John Potash is our very special guest, and we've been talking to him. Uh, about his book, once again, uh, The FBI's War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era through the 1990s is uh, the full title. Twelve years of research went into this great book. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down.